You guys, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's open up to um, John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are some um, on the floor in front of you. Grab one of those, and uh, we're going to page 900 in our Bible, John chapter 13. If, you, uh, if you're a guest with us or you don't have your own um, Bible, feel free to take that Bible with you. It's our gift to you. We'd just love for you to have a copy for yourself. All right, so we're in John chapter 13. And um, we're going to be digging in. By the way, I'm Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Trailhead. And um, we're continuing some thoughts that we began last week out of John 13. So to continue that, let's, let's dig in, starting in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he had poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing You do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you, for I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, by the way, that that is John, the author of this gospel. That's how he refers to himself, the disciple Jesus loved. It doesn't mean that Jesus loved him more than the others. It means that he was keenly aware of how much he himself was loved. One of, the, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. 
Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. You guys pray with me. Father God, I thank you that um, you have given us this gift of your word. And that as we open it this morning, we have the opportunity to meet you. And so, Father, I pray that you will prepare our hearts, um, soften them, give us the gift of humility to receive Open the eyes of our spiritual understanding. Lord, we ultimately need you to to see and understand truth. So I pray, Lord, that you would be active here. Spirit, that you would hover over this space, incubating the work of grace within our hearts that we might respond to be changed. We love you and we want to be set free. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this this morning to glorify yourself and release us to the good that you've promised us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, last week I, I mentioned that I'm coming right off my sabbatical. I got a great break over the summer, and, and during the second week of my sabbatical, Lauren and I got away for um, four days to the Smoky Mountains, which was awesome. Never been there before, and um, you know, what do you do in the Smoky Mountains? If you've ever been there, you drive, right? So we just drove all over the place and, and explored, and, and um, it, was, it was a great time. Um, there's a little community in the Smoky Mountains called Cades Cove. It's, it's kind of buried deep in the mountains, and, and it was a very isolated community because it was surrounded by a ridge of mountains, and um, there's a loop that you can drive through, and it's incredibly scenic, and, and um, we saw our bear, which was awesome. I wanted to see a bear. And um, there's a spot where you can hike out to a waterfall. That was very, very cool. That'll be a sermon illustration for another day because um, we almost died. But it was awesome. And um, while we were driving through, Lauren was like, hey, I want to see one of the historic buildings, right? So I'm driving along, and I see a sign for the Primitive Baptist Church. I'm like, all right, let's do this. Bam, turn down this dirt road and pull up to this thing. And I'm like, let's get this historic building in, right? And so... You know, it honestly wasn't that all impressive. I walk up and, and it's just a building, right? It's four walls um, and that's it. <laughs> it's, uh, you go inside and, and uh, we went in and looked around. It's a very simple interior. It's just a room with very rough pews. Um, doesn't look very comfortable, you know, a pulpit up there. And um, the floor was really like worn and dirty just from, from, you know, 130 years of people tromping in and walking all over it. There was graffiti carved on the walls. Um, and it was interesting, you know, it was interesting. I walked in, I'm like, oh, it's kind of cool, right? Sweet. Let's move on. Right. But I looked up and, and this is the reason I bring this up is that, that this actually began, God was doing something, um, in this. And when I looked up, something caught my attention. I looked at the ceiling and when I looked at the ceiling, I was like, that's weird. There are marks all over the ceiling. And then I'm looking, I'm like, those look like handprints and boot prints. I mean, what in the world? Who comes in and walks on a ceiling? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, what, how does that happen? Right? I get the graffiti on the walls. Those were dumb kids or, or just dumb young adults or dumb old adults. Who knows? Um, but the, the, the 
the marks on the ceiling were unusual. And so the, there, was a, there was a ranger there, and he said there was going to be a presentation, hang out. So I'm like, cool, let's stick around. He's going to tell us about Cade's Cove, tell us about the life of this local church, uh, tell us a little bit about the history. And he tells us that while we're sitting there, some of you may have noticed the marks on the ceiling. And, and he says, what happened was when they built the, the church, um, the wood was fresh. They had just cut the logs. They had just split the logs. It was green and the sap was fresh. So what you're seeing are actually the handprints and the footprints of the people who actually built this place. And in that moment, it kind of hit me like these are real people. It's not just an old building right? That's, that's mildly interesting. There was something that happened here. And suddenly it was like, I, I got this vision and, and it wasn't like a charismatic vision. It wasn't like I was transported to the seventh heaven. It was more like there was a, a thought that gripped me, you know what I'm saying? But you can kind of see it clearly. And in that moment, what I saw was this community coming together in the evening, like after they've had a full day's work, these guys worked and they would come together as a community and they wanted to build something. Build something for them and build something for their children. Build something that was going to ultimately outlast them, but be something that would serve the community. And it was, it was kind of cool, right? I mean, in that moment, it was, it was cool. But it wasn't like, what's funny is when, I, when it came together in my head, it wasn't like this, um, oh, I don't know, Little House on the Prairie type vision where they're all drinking lemonade and, and sharing chicken and um, just laughing and hugging. What I saw in my head, honestly, was what is real here, which is a very complex community. In that small place, you know that there were people that you loved and people you didn't, right? There were people that, that you just laughed with, that you exchanged pleasantries with, people that you had mildly inappropriate jokes with, people that you just liked to hang out with, right? And then there were probably those that you didn't like, right? In that small community, you couldn't just run out of, to town to, to go get something. You did all of your commerce right there in town. You know that there were times when that commerce didn't go well, when people felt cheated or, or shorted. You know there were times when there were insults or slights. You, you know that there were jealousies and bitterness. And what that means is that when that community came together to build that church, it was that kind of complex <coughs> dynamic of, of tension and joy of people I like and people I don't, but we're all coming together around kind of a, a similar thing, right? And that's, that, that was powerful to me, that sense of real people. And then he started talking about the rhythms of this, of this church. And I want to let you guys know, you should be very, very thankful that we're not primitive Baptists um, because not only do they sit in incredibly hard, uncomfortable pews, um, they had elders like we do, but every Sunday, every elder preached a full sermon. And so they would sit there for four to five hours, right? It made me feel much better about going a little bit long when I preach. But um, these guys would sit there all day long. And then they would also meet once a week um, for foot washing. They would do this thing that, that obviously the Bible talks about, but is kind of weird. I mean, honestly, foot washing is one of those things that I read about, but has been very foreign to me. I, I get a little weirded out by it because I don't like people touching my feet. Um, there are dudes that I know that, that love pedicures, and, and that's cool. That's what they like, right? I'm all right with that. But even if you go to a pedicure, you're basically, you're paying someone who's, their professional job is to touch feet. You know what I'm saying? It's not as weird because that's what they do all day, right? I get it. When I, when I picture these guys going, I always picture that scene out of Dumb and Dumber with the sander, you know, but um, th- these people are paid to. They're strangers and their job is to touch feet. Foot washing in the church, you guys, it's not a stranger, the person cleaning your feet is somebody you know. Maybe you like them. Maybe you don't. The person you're washing their feet, 
You know them. Maybe you like them. Maybe you don't. I mean, can you imagine how that goes down? Right? I mean, some of these people are people that you're trying to nurse a grudge against because you're angry at them. Some of them are people you're trying to impress because you think, you know, somehow that you're going to have an advantage. If, if they like you, you want them to like you. You want them to be impressed with you. Foot washing has a way of ruining both of those. Can you imagine trying to, you know, here comes Matt. I'm trying to impress this guy. Man, I'll really wash his feet. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're down there washing someone's feet, it's really hard to be impressive. You know what I'm saying? When someone's like got your grubby feet in their hands, it's really hard to be impressive. And I'm guessing it's probably just as hard to nurse a grudge, right? Here comes Joe. I'm really angry at him. I'm going to break his toes, right? No, you, you're washing his feet. And, and I'm guessing it would prompt some conversations. Because if I have to have that kind of close personal interaction with somebody, grudges are easy to keep as long as they're kept in the dark and kept at a distance. You know what I'm saying? Like we separate ourselves from the people we're angry at and we keep that and we never go to a back to a conversation and we never, because conversations have a way of actually surfacing issues and, and surfacing those issues and talking about them has a way of bringing reconciliation, right? So I'm guessing that foot washing had a pretty powerful effect on this community, this tiny community where you can't escape the people you like or the people you don't. So here's what happened is, is, as I was thinking about this, I decided I was going to sit in John 13 for the rest of my sabbatical, the whole book of John, but really John 13, and just sit in it. So I've been digging in this chapter and sitting in it. And, and here's where we're going today. I mean, I really had a rough time getting this message around today, but this is where we're going. So I'm going to give you a whole outline and then we're going to dig into it. Here it is. Very simply, grace frees us to humbling gratitude. Gratitude frees us to radical generosity. Generosity frees us to a true experience of community, and community frees us to a deeper experience of grace. Let me unpack what I mean, okay? First of all, grace frees us to a humbling gratitude. Last week, we looked at this passage, and we focused primarily on Jesus, right, the main character of the story. Before we jump to the application, I wanted to take time and, and take a look at Jesus, the, uh, the, the one who's the, the illustration himself, right? The very beginning of John, we find out who Jesus is. John says that Jesus is the Word. Uh, it's a title that means He is the very expression, the very thought, the very concept of God made flesh, the glory of God manifest in the flesh so that we could actually see it. He is with God and was God. He was the one who created everything that was created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Colossians tells us that it is by the word of his power that all things hold together. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign God. And in John chapter 13, we see him disrobe, put on a towel, and wash his disciples' feet. You guys, he didn't do that simply to tell them what to do. He did it to show them who he was, right? He didn't just humble himself for a moment to give an object lesson. What he was saying was, I want you to see my heart. This wasn't like a politician showing up to a community cleanup event, getting a photo op, jumping back in the limo, and then never coming back. This is Jesus basically saying, I want to show you my heart. I am glorious and I am humble. I am worthy of your worship. In fact, I'm worthy to be the sole object of your worship. And I will serve you. I will wash you. 
I am humble enough to never get offended, never give up. And because of that, I will change you. I will free you. Think about it. He knew that night that he was about to be betrayed. He knew that this was his last lesson to his disciples. This object lesson that he was giving them. He chose this object lesson for this night. It was the last thing that he, the last gift he would give his disciples. That makes it kind of important, right? Raises the bar a little bit as far as the importance of this, of this object lesson, right? What effect do you think it would have? What effect would it have had on you if you were there that night? If Jesus had disrobed, put on a towel, and washed your feet, what effect would it have had on you? What effect would it have had a couple weeks later when after the whirlwind of the crazy events of the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension had passed and you're thinking there and you're thinking back and you're like, man, that ascension was crazy. (laughs) I got a mission and the resurrection. Oh my goodness, that was such good news. And the crucifixion, man, my heart was so broken and I almost forgot the night before he washed my feet. Jesus washed my feet. What effect would that have on you? I know what I would feel because as I sat in this text, it started to awaken within me. And very simply, it's this. It is a humble gratitude. You know why? Because I don't deserve this kind of love. I don't deserve this kind of service. My heart, man, I'm like Peter. I know myself, man. I'm, I'm a little hard-headed, and often I am hard-hearted. Man, I turn away from God all the time and walk in the mud and show back up, and I'm like, you got to wash my feet again, man. I don't deserve that kind of love, but I have it. I have it. You guys, grace is undeserved love. It is affection when we least expect it or when we feel like we least deserve it. And that's why a deep encounter with grace will always produce gratitude. Unexpected, undeserved love will always awaken within you a sense of thankfulness because we're getting the very thing we need at the very moment we feel like we don't deserve it. A deep experience of grace will produce within us a deep experience of humble gratitude. And the deeper the experience of grace, the more profound will be the experience of gratitude. Jesus said it this way, he who is forgiven much loves much. The deeper the sense of your experience of grace, the more profound and humbling will be the experience of gratitude. And that gratitude will release us, free us to generosity. And that generosity is equivalent to the gratitude. The deeper our experience of gratitude, the more profound and radical will be our experience of generosity, right? Gratitude, you guys think about this. Gratitude is the most powerful antidote we have for the blood poisoning of greed. We don't talk a lot about greed in the church. It's not, not one of those big, sexy sins that gets a lot of attention. There's a lot of other great sins that we can talk about that, that tend to get a lot more attention. But greed really is, um, 
It's bad, and we all have it, you guys. It's in our blood. And I'm not just talking about money here. Um, I'm, I'm talking about something that includes money, but it's, but it's way more than that. That's only a small part. You guys, think about this. Greed is the default mode of our hearts. Greed says, I need to keep and protect what I have, and I need more. I need to keep and protect what I have, and I need more. That's the default mode of our hearts. That's where we go by nat- nature. So my money, right? But, but it's a lot more than just my money. It's my time. It's my energy. It's my privacy. It's, it's my fun. It's my relational capacity. See, I spend my money. But I also spend my time. I spend my energy. I, I spend my relational capacity. And I do it on things that will pay me back. We all invest those things on things that will pay us back, right? So when I spend my money, I spend it on something and I expect a return on my investment. It should bring me pleasure or joy or freedom or power or influence. If I spend my time on someone, it should pay me back. We're always thinking in terms of investment. Why? Because there is an economy of greed. It is about keeping what I have, protecting it and investing it so I have more. It is a very self-centered, self-motivated economy and it is the value center the value system of our world, where I am the center of my world and my resources are limited and every debit threatens my ability to protect what I have. And so I become very, very sensitive when I start spending my time or my energy or my my relational capacity or my love on things that do not seem to pay back. You guys, when I'm centered on Christ, when I realize what it means to stand in the grace of of Christ. I am released from my small world of self-protection. I am freed to radical generosity. And I say radical because it is so unlike the generosity of this world. The generosity of this world, even the generosity of this world is motivated by self-interest. I give. Why? Because it pays me back, makes me feel good about myself. Somehow, profits me in some way. We're talking about a radical generosity that releases, not for self-gain, but for the good of others. So I'm freed with my time, my resources, my money, my relationships. You guys think about this. When the God of the universe says to you, I love you unconditionally, and I will give you more than you can ask or think. When the sovereign God of the universe, who has all resources at his avail, avail, says, I'm going to give you more than you can handle, but not more than I can handle in and through you. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free to give. I'm free to release. I'm free to be generous. You guys, the economy of this world is greed in every area. The economy of the kingdom is generosity. Because you simply cannot outgive God. And as you come to realize that, you'll, you'll come to release your death grip on your time, your money, your talent, your resources, 
your relational capacity, you, you will release that. See, those things, when you do that, when you release your death grip on those things, you're actually releasing the very things that are bringing you death. Not because those things are bad. They're actually good. The problem isn't the things. The problem is your death grip on those things, right? And when you open up your hand to release those things, to give those things away, you are actually in the best position to receive. And you guys think about this. Grace must always be received. Grace is always a gift. It is never earned, never deserved. So you have to be in a humble place of reception to receive and experience its power. As we release, we actually put ourselves in the best position to experience the power and joy of grace. Because here's the thing, grace's power, grace's joy is always experienced in transition. Grace was never given to us to, to hoard. It was given to us to give away. And as it passes through us, God blesses us, we bless others, we experience the joy of that grace. God doesn't give us grace so that we can hoard it in our economy of greed. God blessed me, so it is my blessing. God blesses you unlimitedly so that you can unlimitedly bless and give to others. So gratitude frees us to radical generosity. And generosity frees us to a true experience of community. Some of you have been wondering, Steve, man, When are you going to get to the text? All right, here we are. We're we're at the text. All right, so grab your Bibles. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. This is Jesus speaking to them, obviously, at the end of the evening or at the end of this part of the evening. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right, so I give you a new commandment. It's new in character. Here's here's the essence of what I want from you. I want you to love others. And the measure is, the, the standard I give you is me. I want you to love others like I have loved you. In fact, he goes on and says, that's going to become the hallmark of how you're going to tell people that are actually my disciples. Their love for one another. Not their morality. Not their political positions. Not where they are on Sunday morning. Their love for one another will be the hallmark characteristic that will set my disciples apart from the rest of the world. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It's a command. Love like Jesus' love. How are you doing with that? I'm not doing real well. I mean, some of you are doing better than me, but you're still not doing real great. Let's be honest. To love like Jesus loved? Unconditionally? Without limits? Completely freely? I don't have the capacity to love like God loves. When we realize that, what ends up happening a lot of times is we end up surrounding ourselves with people that are easier to love. We we surround ourselves with people that are like us. Little images of ourselves, people that like many me's. Why? Because we love ourselves. And it's a whole lot easier to love you if you look like me. You know what I'm saying? Like if you act like me and value the same things as me and hold the same opinions as me and don't challenge me and and don't push me into my weakness and don't make me feel awkward, it's a whole lot easier to make me love you, right? And then we walk around pretending, well, look, I love like Jesus's love. No, you really don't. You just love yourself. 
You guys, this is an impossible command unless you are undone by grace. Grace is the only force in the universe powerful enough to change your heart. When you are amazed by grace, when you are amazed by our foot washing God and Savior, God will awaken within you a genuine heart transforming sense of gratitude. And that gratitude will, by its very nature, free you in generosity toward others, make you less self-centered, less self-focused, less self-protective. And generosity is the foundation of true community. You guys, there is no true community without generosity. The Greek word for community is koinonia, and, and in its most literal, simplest sense, it simply means sharing. It's a word that means sharing. Acts chapter 2 describes the early church right after um, Jesus was ascended and the Spirit came down and, and the, early, um, the disciples were empowered to preach the gospel. And there was this huge influx, right? Thousands of people in a single day, right? And, and, and they come together. And, and this is Acts chapter 2. It says, they devoted themselves. And I shortened the list. There's actually a number of things. and We got our five core values for the church from that list. But what I want to focus on is they devoted themselves to fellowship. The word fellowship is koinonia, community. They devoted themselves to this sharing of life, to this community. And look how it works out. And all who believed had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all the proceeds to all as any had need. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Now, you guys, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to um, jump into communal living. Not gonna have, give me everything you own, all right? Bring it up. Let's just, that's not going to happen. Um, this was a unique situation. There were thousands of people that came to Jerusalem for the festival, right? And when they became believers, they became part of this new community of Christ followers, and they stayed. <laughs> they didn't have homes. They didn't have jobs. And so what ended up happening was there was a great need. But remember what I told you, where there is a great experience of grace, there will be a great response of gratitude and generosity. And so they sold what they had. They cashed in their IRAs. They sold their lakefront properties. They got rid of their boats, their second cars, their first cars. They sold them. If they could live without it, they cashed it in. Why? Because there was a great need for generosity and their hearts were so undone by grace, they were moved to be generous, to meet the needs of those who had needs. You guys, look at the end result, right? It tells us in the text that as a result, they were glad and filled with generous hearts. They weren't doing this out of duty. They weren't doing this out of moral obligation. They weren't doing this to impress people. It was an expression of joy and it increased their joy. They had glad and generous hearts. You guys, this kind of behavior makes no sense in an economy of greed. This is the kind of behavior that's going to make people outside go, holy cow, who are you people? And what in the world are you smoking, right? Because I might want some, right? In fact, that's what it says. Look at the end of the verse. Having favor with all people. It means that people were looking in saying, you guys are weird, but I want me some of that. I don't know what you got going on, but I don't have it. And I want it. I want it. You guys, listen to this. If people aren't jealous of what we have, we aren't experiencing everything we've been given. 
Did you hear that? If people are not jealous of what we have in Christ, we are not experiencing everything we've been given. Some of you are like, Steve, man, you don't, you, don't, you don't get it, man. I'm suffering right now. You don't know the bad stuff that's going on in my life. And you're right, I don't. I don't know. But I can tell you that the Bible is full of examples of people that were imprisoned, disenfranchised, persecuted, tortured, even martyred. And the people watching them saw something in them that said, I'm on the outside of your suffering, but I want what you have so bad I'm willing to step on the inside. I'm willing to join you because what you have is so good, I'm willing to give up what I have to get it. They stood outside the suffering and jumped in because what they saw was better than what they had. You guys, God will often use our greatest suffering to usher us in to our greatest experience of grace. And we'll often use that to also usher other people in to a greater experience of grace. God uses everything, including our suffering, for His glory and our good. If people are not jealous of what we have, we aren't experiencing everything we've been given. You need to be jealous for more. Don't just talk about joy. Why are we just talking about life and, 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 and overflowing joy and transformed lives when the reality is sitting right in front of us? Why would we settle for a bowl of plastic fruit when the real thing is right there? Many of us are settling for half-hearted lives with half measures of joy. So how does all this tie into community? True community comes when we share our lives with one another. Koinonia, sharing, right? When we are generous with our time, with our homes, with our tables, with our joys, with our suffering. When we stop trying to be entertainers and start being hospitable. You know what I'm saying? Right? Some of you are really good at inviting people over and offering them Pinterest-level meals. Right? They look good. It's, everything's beautiful. And, and you're entertaining. You know what that is? That's a great way to actually keep people at arm's length. Be impressed with me. Like me. Be jealous of me. Walk away wishing you were me. That's not community. It's a barrier to community. Hospitality is, man, just invite people into your mess. Right? Help, let them help you make the meal. Let them set the table. It doesn't matter if the dishes match or if something's a mess. It's human. And as you share your humanity with them, they will share their humanity with you. And there will be a sharing of life. And there will actually be a growing transparency and an increasing intimacy and actually life-on-life kind of action. You guys, the American dream is to get as much as we can and wall it in behind iron gates and then sit back there isolated, thinking about how jealous people are of us. That is the economy of greed, and it shrivels our capacity for joy. Our affluence, our isolation becomes our ghetto. We stop being the church. And we start settling for just going to church. We consume religious services without engaging our hearts. 
We don't move into the genuine spiritual habits of humility and hospitality and service and love. We talk a lot, but they're just words. You guys, listen to me. True community, true community enlarges our hearts and increases our ability to experience joy. The wealthiest people in the world are not those with the most stuff, but the ones with the most joy. And joy comes in the giving and receiving of love. And love can only be found in community. Some people, there's a bit of a danger here. Some people are going to be like, you know what, you're right, Steve. I need more people in my life. I'm getting a little lonely. My world's a little small. But I'm only going to let people in that make me feel comfortable. People who are like me. I mean, you know as well as I do, there's nothing radical about that. There's nothing real about that. That is simply the economy of greed expressing itself in religious behavior. The church becomes a social club. It's one, way, one more way for us to surround ourselves with people that make us feel good about us. You know, no one's going to look into that kind of group and say, man, I want some of that. In fact, the world is looking into the church today, and they see a lot of that going on. You know what they're saying? You live in a ghetto of experience and intellectual thought. You live in a very small world, and I don't want it. I don't need your morality. I don't need your religious behavior. What I need is love. What I need is something that is going to connect with my deep need for experienced love. Grace produces a generosity of spirit that doesn't discriminate. Genuine grace will expand the borders of our experience of love. We will come to love those that we have difficulty loving. Why? Because that's what generosity does. It pushes us out to love in greater and greater ways, with greater and greater freedom. We'll be generous with our love. We'll be generous with our sympathy. We'll be generous with the giving others the benefit of the doubt. People who are like us and people who aren't like us. You guys, genuine, a genuine deep experience of grace will produce within us a generosity that destroys the us-them barrier. You guys know what I'm talking about? The us-them barrier? The us are the people that are right. <laughs> the them are the people that are wrong. The us are the people that measure up. The them are the people that don't. The us are the people that have it right. Whatever it is, politically, religiously, doctrinally, behaviorally, There's us and then there's them. And us always feels superior to them. Always. Grace destroys the us-them paradigm and value of thinking. Because you guys, grace tells us there's only an us. People who need grace. And a God who gives grace. There is no them. We are a collective people of broken, sinful, selfish, self-centered hearts desperately in need of the grace of God. Over the last two weeks, my Facebook feed 
has been a vivid and ugly example of the economy of greed. It's been frightening as I've watched people I love in a city I love just buying into this mob mentality, swinging from one extreme to another, calling for for justice, and what they really want is vengeance. There are so many things that can and should be said about the events that have taken place in our region over the last two weeks. And there are worthy things being said that we need to pay attention to. But for this morning, I want to ask you one simple question. Have you allowed your heart, maybe not your lips, but have you allowed your heart to say, man, those people? And by those people, you meant a group of people, black or white, police or protesters, looters or shooters, a group that you felt justified judging, a group that you felt justified feeling superior to them in some way, a group that you felt like you were justified putting them outside of the circle of your love and affection and acceptance. Because if you have, You have been operating according to the value system of this world, the economy of greed, not the economy of grace. You're like, Steve, man, but there's there's issues, man. There's issues of justice here. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are issues of justice and they need to be dealt with. But you guys listen to me until we are undone with grace, we are in no place to bring justice. If this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that we can never say you are unworthy of me washing your feet. Do you really think that you're superior to your master? Do you really think you are greater than your Lord? You guys consider what happened that night. Where was Judas during the foot washing? Where was he? He was at the table. Jesus washed his feet. Is there an issue of justice there? Absolutely. Jesus knows he's about to betray him, but that doesn't change the economy by which Jesus' behavior is governed, an economy of love and grace. Jesus loved Judas and expressed it in humble service. You know, right before Judas goes out to betray him, the text tells us that Jesus' heart was troubled. I don't think his heart was troubled because of what was coming in the crucifixion. I think his heart was troubled because he loved Judas. He wasn't thinking about what was coming for him. He was thinking about what was coming for Judas, and his heart was troubled. His heart was broken even as Judas betrayed him because he loved Judas. We cannot look at issues of justice clearly until we are looking through eyes that have been made clear by grace. Until we have a humble love, we are not fit to bring justice.
When Jesus says, love one another like I have loved you, he's calling us to an entirely new way of, of operating in life. A radical new paradigm for what it means to value what's important, how we look at people and interact with people, how we interact with everything. The value of foot washing, you guys, is that it puts us under everyone else. We are under the lowest of the low. It puts us in a place where we are unable to self-righteously judge anyone. If there's anyone we would exclude from the circle of our community, we have just excluded ourselves from the circle of grace. You guys, grace frees us to humble gratitude. That gratitude frees us to a radical generosity of life. That radical generosity frees us to true community. And to wrap it up, community frees us to a deeper experience of grace. Take a look at verses 13 through 17 to wrap it up. Starting in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. His command ends with a promise. Basically saying, look, I know this is going to be hard. It's hard to be in community. You know why it's hard to be in community? It's not because of them. I think a lot of times we're like, man, it's just so hard to be in community because they're so annoying. They're so self-centered. They're so talkative. They hijack the conversations. They want to just take, 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 take. The, hard, the, the reason it's so hard to be in community is not them. It's us. It's our heart. That's why it's hard. Do you think it was hard for Jesus to be humble? Do you think it was hard for him to wash his disciples' feet? It looks like to me it was the most natural thing ever. It was easy. And that looks insane to us. You know why? Not because he's insane, but because we are. We're the ones that are bent and broken from the way it should be. He created this world to operate according to the rules of love and humility. And it seems so foreign to us because we are so filled with pride. The reason it's hard to be in in, in community is not those crazy people out there. It's the crazy person in here. And what he's saying is when you move into community, listen to me, there's a blessing for you in it. If you do this, blessed are you, right? There's a blessing for you in this. God will bless you in the community of the church. It's popular today, and I get it, to to be a little down on the church, honestly. I love Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I just, that church thing, man, they're a bunch of hypocrites. I'm just not into that. And that's nonsense right? I mean, we're commanded to wash one another's feet. You ever tried to wash another's feet without having another? We can do wash your own feet. That's not worship. That's just weird, right? You need others. You guys, let me ask you this. Where's God's favorite place on earth? It's not Jerusalem. And it's not Edwardsville, although it's pretty cool. It's not Ferguson. Or East St. Louis. God's favorite place on earth is the church. His called out people. 
The New Testament tells us that the church, the gathering of believers, are the temple of the Holy God, that He has taken up residence within us individually and corporately when we come together. We are the temple of the living God. We're, we're called the body of Christ. That's an intimate relationship, right? It's a, it's a relationship of delight. God loves us broken people. In the same way He loved His broken disciples and wash their feet. He loves us, right? We are the called out people of God. He loves people like us to dwell within us. And in community, he unleashes grace to change us and more like him, make us more like himself. He uses community to increase our experience of grace, to change us, to free us. See, grace drives us to community. When you get grace, it will produce within you a greater generosity. And that greater generosity will cause you to be more generous with people. It will move you into community. Moving into community will increase your experience of grace. Right? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We need to pursue community. Just like the early church, they were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to community, to the sharing of life. It was something they chased. Guys, here's the bottom line. You can't do this on your own. You need us and we need you. So I'm going to end the message with an appeal. Guys, don't just show up. Don't just make this your Sunday thing. You are missing out on so much. You're settling for the, for the rhythms without the reality. There's so much more. Plug in. Get involved. Don't just consume. Invest, and you will be blessed. You guys, the way we do this at Trailhead is, is we, we organize community groups. Community groups are our primary tool of helping people move into community. Right? The gathering is awesome. It's an important part of the church. But, but knowing and being known takes place best in small group. Life transformation takes place best in small groups. And so we help people move into those small groups by putting them into community groups. And I can't guarantee you that, that you will like or love everyone in your community group, that they will be exactly like you. What I can guarantee you is that if you show up and you aren't about consuming but giving, let me love you, let me serve you, let me know you, you will be blessed. So I encourage you, man, get off the fence, move off of the fringe, go to Connection Point after service, sign up for a community group, and let's get into this thing together right? Let's, let's, let's do this life on life thing and, and allow the spirit of God to work on us and change us and free us. The other thing is I'm going to encourage you to serve. God has given you gifts and abilities, again, not just for you, not the economy of greed, but, but the economy of grace to share and to bless others with. And we need your service. We need your help. And so I encourage you, right, after the service over on the county, there's, there's going to be a bunch of sign-up lists where you can find out about all the different ways you can serve and plug in. And you can take a look. How am I wired? Where will I find joy? What can I do? There will be some specific job descriptions. There are some ministries we want to start, some areas we need specific people. We're praying that God will raise up the right leaders for those areas. If you take a look at that and you're like, man, I think that might be me, then, then let's open up a conversation and, and let's talk about it, right? But here's the thing. We need you to serve and you will be blessed by serving. You need to serve. So check it out. You guys, grace brings gratitude. Gratitude releases generosity. Generosity brings us into an experience of community. Community increases our experience of grace. It is a beautiful cycle. 
where it just compounds the blessing of Christ in our life. It doesn't give us more grace, but it increases our experience of the grace we already have in Christ. Jump in. Let's do this thing. You guys, as we move into a time of response, I'm going to put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray and do some business with God. First of all, are you amazed by the grace of God? If you're not, this is where you need to start. It, it can't give you any dues until you got the what down, right? The what is we begin with, with loving God, right? We love God because He first loved us. So it always begins as a response to the love of God. Are you amazed by your foot-washing Savior? Have you filled your vision with how He has served you, how He set aside His right to glory, to become a servant? to die for you. He who knew no sin, becoming sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. Does that amaze you? If not, let's start there, man. Consider Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and let Him break your heart with His love. Secondly, have you allowed your gratitude to release in you a new radical generosity? Maybe you have a strong devotional life. Maybe you really do respond powerfully to God. Has that released within you a greater service and connection with others? Or have you been operating by the, by the economy of greed and just keeping that? It's all about me. It's all about my experience. It's all about my deep relationship with God. Or do you recognize that everything God gives to you, he gives that you might give it away? Have you allowed your, your gratitude to release within you a greater sense of generosity? And thirdly, where is God calling you to be generous? In community. With your time, your talents, your treasures, your money your relational capacity to love practically and serve joyfully. If foot washing is anything, it is practical. It is real. It is service. How is God calling you to humble service within the body? You guys are going to move into a time of response. I'm going to encourage you to fill out the response card that's in your bulletin. We would love to hear from you, your thoughts, your responses, your prayer requests. There are boxes up on the, uh, the um, communion tables. When you come up for communion, you can drop it in there. Or um, if you want to, you can just drop it by the box by the door on your way out. But we would love to receive those response cards from you. Let me pray for us. We'll go into our time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father God, I thank you that, uh, that you are a God of humility. An astounding thought. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to us. We are so quick to take pride in every little way we think we are better than others. So quick to puff up those things that make us look good or strong or intelligent. So quick to hide the areas we're afraid others will see. God, I thank you that you are a humble God and that in your humility you invite us to vulnerability. You invite us because we know, Lord, there's no safer place than in love. So I pray for my friends, Lord. I know there are some here that, man, they just, they've been hurt. They have closed themselves off because of the pain. They have been betrayed. They, they don't trust. Father, I pray that your spirit, first of all, would call out to them with the voice of love that they might grow in their sense of security in you, knowing they're loved, knowing that you men, you died for them. You rose again for them. How will you not also give all things to them? Men, increase their security in you, and in doing so, increase their security with the ability of reaching out and connecting with others, that they might love and be loved, known and known. 
Pray for my friends that are active, that you will encourage their hearts, that you will increase their capacity for joy. Lord, we want this to be a place where your name is glorified and we're here just living in the overflow of your joy. Bless us with that radical kind of freedom. 